Genesis chapter 5. So we got done with last week talking about Cain's lineage, right? We talked about kind of his family went through and uh, wrapped up in talking about uh, his family, what happened after he killed Abel and that whole situation. And uh, we got to see how God in his mercy allowed Cain to live and have a family and produce children. And just interesting to think about what God might have been doing in his life as that proceeded. And we're in chapter 5, going to go through another genealogy. Now we're going to focus on Seth, and we're going to focus on the line that God is going to use to bring forth his Redeemer, to bring forth the Savior, uh, the, the chosen line, the line through Seth. And genealogy isn't what it used to be. Um, you know, in reading this, to us many times genealogies can be kind of boring. We read all these names that we can barely pronounce, and uh, it seems kind of monotonous sometimes. But if you dig a little deeper, it's amazing what you'll find. And, uh, you know, in our culture today, genealogy isn't a really a big deal. I don't know about you, but I've never really looked up my personal genealogy. Anybody ever done that? One, one person? Two people? Cool. Three. Awesome. You know, and I've, I've wanted to do that, but we don't really make a big deal of it in our culture, do we? We don't go, well, who's your father, and who's your father's father, and well, who's your, who you descended from? And we don't really brag about it either. Matter of fact, it's kind of frowned upon when somebody says, do you know who my daddy is? You know, we, nobody really appreciates that. But back in the ancient times, your heritage, your family lineage was everything. It was so critical. It, it defined you. It defined your social status. It defined uh, where you fit in, in society and in culture. Uh, it was a big deal. And so tracing that was a big deal. Being accurate with that was a big deal. And that's one of the things that we can be confident in in God's Word is obviously no exception. Uh, these genealogies were very accurate. They were kept with religious scrutiny and, and in, in the case of God's Word, obviously, with very specific purpose. And we're going to dig into that a little bit tonight. So before we start in Genesis 5, chapter 1, why don't we pray and ask God's Spirit just to speak to us and open His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word promises that your, that your word does not return void, that it accomplishes the purpose for which you set it. And Lord, we will just want to be receptive to that tonight. We know that the only way it wouldn't is if we reject it. And so I pray, Lord, you'd open our hearts, help us to be humble before you. And as we read through this, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be interesting facts and information, but that it would truly apply to our lives, that it would affect us personally and that it would affect those around us in turn. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word that you preserved for us, for our learning tonight, and we just look forward to what your spirit has to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book, The Generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, and he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And in the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800, and 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So I'm do it a little different tonight. I'm going to read through, and then we're going to talk about it and unpack a section at a time. So this is a book of the generations of Adam. We notice this phrase actually throughout Genesis, and something I want to remind you of, we talked about this in the beginning, how we notice the term generations 
And it comes up 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it, and it really kind of differentiates certain sections throughout Genesis. Um, this word book, it's interesting, the word here in Hebrew, book, it also could be translated a writing or evidence. It also can mean to be interpreted to learn or a register. And so I just want to clarify this word book because this isn't just any book. It's not a, a fanciful book. It's not a book of nice legends and stories. This is meant to be an accurate record. This is meant to be, as it says here, evidence or a register, something we can learn from. It's meant to be an accurate record, and that's found within the, within the structure of that word book itself. And it says, this is the generations. This word, this Hebrew word for generation is the same word used back in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 when it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth and when they are created. We see we just kind of finished talking about the generations of the, of the earth or the accounting of the creation record. And so now we're seeing a differentiation made here by the author that we're now going to talk about sort of the history of man, the genealogy of Adam this next generation milestone in the book of Genesis. So this is a bit of a milestone here. This word generations is the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 when it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth and when they were created. So the generation of Adam in the day that he was created. And it's interesting because he starts this chapter off kind of doing a quick recap of creation and, and, and emphasizing some things. He repeats some things. And I figure... Typically in God's word, when he re they re it repeats itself, it's because he's trying to get something through to us. He's trying to get us to pay attention to something. And so I figure we should pay attention and, and make note of what is being repeated here. So it says in the day that he, is, he was created. So again, it's distinguishing this era, this era of time of creation, the time before the flood, the time of the events, and it's kind of establishing this time frame, the time before really the flood of Noah, this primeval period of time and in the founding of human history. It's talking about this era. And it's saying that we're going to get into Adam's lineage and ultimately lay out the lineage for all mankind. You know, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, talks about this as it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the earth, all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So Acts 17 kind of reflects with the foundation that's being laid here, the point that's being made here. And it says that he made them, so again, God is the creator. He made them male and female. He made them in his image and in his likeness, and he blessed them. There's these key points that are repeated throughout the past few chapters, that God is the creator, He's distinguishing the male and the female and the necessity of the two to reflect God's image and likeness. Image meaning uh, his personhood, who he is made after him, and likeness actually meaning uh, like a shadow. The word likeness, actually the original word, is, is actually shadow or uh, something along those lines. And in a shadow, as is the case in the physical realm, the shadow is sort of uh, the thing that uh, foretells the, the actual uh, thing that the shadow is of. It's, it's, it's meant to point to the object of the shadow, right? It's not the actual substance, and that's what we are. We point to our creator, and God bless them. So there's an interesting contrast here made in these first few verses, verses 1 through 5, that I want to talk about, because we see it talking about, in verse 1, about how God, or God made Adam and Eve in his image, right? In his likeness, in his image. But then it goes on to talk about Adam's son, 
And what does it say about Adam's son? It says he became the father of a son in his, whose own likeness? Adam's likeness. And according to his image, and named him Seth. It seems to be that God's word here is, is attempting to really make a distinction between how, by reminding us how Adam and Eve were made in God's likeness and image, and then making a point of saying how Seth, the son of Adam, was in Adam's likeness and in Adam's image. There's a, distinguish, a distinguishment being made here between all of those children that came after Adam's fall uh, that were in his image. And this is a critical doctrinal point. Um, Adam was the only one made, Adam and Eve, the only one made directly by God and in God's image, and really, again, prior to the fall, really made most perfectly like God in his image in that representation. To further establish this point, Luke 3.37 says, in laying out the genealogy of Jesus, it talks about in, in verse three, uh, 37 and 38, it says he's the son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is called in Scripture the son of God. He's the only one that's referred to that way in human terms. Uh, and he, speaking of a human, he's called the son of God in a couple places in Scripture because he was directly the direct creation of God. He was the one made directly in the image of God. And then it makes this distinguishment about Seth. And, in the day that God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. God spells out here uh, that, backing up here, I'm sorry, I'm confusing my notes. Uh, he's spelling something out here for us that he's distinguishing between uh, his direct creation of Adam and, and Seth and, and the lineage thereafter. A quick side note, it notice that it says he created man, and then it goes on to say he made him in the likeness. And those two words are actually completely different Hebrew words. They're not just used interchangeably. It's meant to point to the fact that God is both the intellectual architect and designer of creation and of man, but he also is the builder. He's the one who actually implemented those designs. He's the one who accomplished it. So again, Adam's son, he's noted to be in Adam's likeness, not God's. Our children are in our likeness, right? You know, whenever we go out, I know that you know, we go shopping, we go places, and when people see us with our kids, a lot of times we get that comment, well, I know whose kids those are, you know, because they look like us, right? They're a bunch of little clones. And, and it's, but it's, it's pretty typical. Your kids look like you. And Seth resembled Adam. Uh, but beyond the physical sense, we also carry our parents' traits, don't we? And our mannerisms, how we talk. And ideally, as Christians, it's our goal not that our children just look physically like us, but we want to raise them up in the character and admonition of the Lord, right? That, that takes effort. That takes pur purposeful planning. We want them to be in that image. So, as it says, you know, as it says here, Adam being created in God's perfect, sinless likeness, Seth, like the rest of mankind, is in the likeness of Adam's now sinful nature. So we are... We are called sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, to quote Narnia, right? We're called, we're, that's what we are. We're, we're sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, unless, unless we're born again. When we're born again, something changes. Something new happens. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become 
children of God, to become children of God. So before that happens, we are just sons of Adam. We're sons of Adam. We're in Adam's likeness. His sinful nature is passed on to us. That's what we inherit. But through Jesus, we have the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of, the blo- not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we have that opportunity. We're born into Adam's likeness, but then we have that opportunity because of Christ to be born again and to have that right to become children of God, to, to truly resemble his image and likeness through the Spirit. Chapter 3 in John also elaborates a lot more on this. And it's interesting to notice how Adam is co- interesting to note how Adam's called the Son of God. But another contrast I'd like to point out is a, n- a name that Jesus gives to himself. What does Jesus call himself? He calls himself the Son of Man. Well, that's interesting. Adam is called the Son of God, and Jesus is called the Son of Man. Why would Jesus call him? It almost seems like a demotion. Well, it is a demotion. He's God. For one thing, coming down as a man was certainly no promotion. But it's interesting that in John 3.13, Jesus himself says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who <clears throat> excuse me, no has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking of himself. There's a critical distinction being made here between the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus is the holy, uncreated one. He is not created like the first Adam. He wasn't made in someone's likeness. He's called the son of man because there's a distinction being made here. Adam was man made in the likeness of God. Jesus was God who became in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. He did the reverse. It is quite an honor to be made in the likeness of God. It is quite humbling for God himself to come into our likeness. And so that's why that distinguishment is made. It really points out the humility of Christ and what he did for us. This title is important for us to understand what Jesus did for us. And the first Adam and the second Adam are contrasted, and there's a reason that this is repeated in Genesis 5. Because from the beginning, this was the grand designer's plan. You see the same message throughout Scripture. So picking up... In, in Genesis chapters 5, verse 6, it says, Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. And then Seth lived 807 years. And after he became the father of Enosh, he had no other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. It's funny. Every time I read this, it says over and over, and he died, and he died. You ever seen the Croods? When, uh, when the father of the Croods, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a, it's a, has anybody seen it? Am I the only one that's seen it? Okay, thank you, Eugene. All right, so some of you have seen it. The father, Grug, he always tells stories to his kids, and he's trying to keep them safe. He's trying to protect them. He's a well-meaning father, and they live in a cave in the beginning there, and his main motto is always be afraid. That's his motto. That's what he teaches to his kids. And he'd, every night he would tell them a bedtime story, and the bedtime story goes something like this. You know, uh, one day there's a little girl who went out outside of the cave and was walking and saw something new and died. <laughs> and basically every story ends with somebody dying because they try something new or see something new or venture out beyond the safe zone, you know. And, and so it's kind of funny when you read this here. Over and over we see this repeated. 
and this person died, and this person died. And so as we read through this, there's a couple of things I want to bring out about this um, because we're going to see a break. A little bit later, we're going to see a break in this pattern. And it's interesting uh, what God can show us through this. So bear with me, in other words. Hang in there. Not everybody dies. Well, just about everybody dies. <laughs> so Enosh lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. Picking up in verse 9, then Enosh lived 815 years, became the father of Kenan, and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan, or Canaan, as is translated in the King James Version, um, uh, had other sons and daughters. So all the, I'm sorry, verse 12, lived 70 years, became the father of Mahalalel, and then Kenan lived 840 years, and after he became the father of Mahalalel, he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Kenan, or Canaan, were 910 years, and he died. Then Mahalalel lived 65 years, became the father of Jared. And then Mahalalel lived 830 years, and became the father of Je- after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. As all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And then Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. And then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now, one interesting thing to note is it constantly reminds us that each of these people had other sons and daughters. You know, so you can imagine with people living this long, uh, just the hundreds and thousands of people that are multiplying throughout this period of time as people well into their 500, 600 years old are having more and more children, continuing to have children, and their children's children's children. I mean, you'd have people who, uh, you know, their, their sister is literally 400 years younger than them. Uh, it's pretty crazy to think. And just a little side note, just a little side note, um, just to throw it out there, there are those who look at these genealogies and these astronomical years and, and, and believe that actually what is being said here or what is being meant here is that each of these people that are brought to light, the specific names, are actually just milestones in the genealogy that people never actually lived that long, but they just represent an era from one gene- genealogical milestone to the next. And I only point that out just to let you know that theory is out there. It's one of the more common uh, theories that people try to propose to sort of reconcile things that they find to be um, marvelous in Scripture. But, you know, the Bible's full of marvelous and amazing things, which we know to be true. And I take it at face value. I believe it means what it says, and we have no other reason to doubt it. But I just want to mention that, bring that to light. The life of the genealogy of Adam and his descendants well, something I'd like you to, to notice here, the life of each of these uh, people listed in the genealogy, life of Adam and so on, is framed by this specific line. Their ages are referenced by this line of, by the line of the, uh, each person in the, in the genealogy. In other words, their ages are referenced by the chosen line. And the timeline. So you've got Adam, and you, then you, it says how old Adam was when Seth was born, right? And it references his whole lifespan by the birth of the next in line, if you follow what I'm saying. Then you have Seth, and his whole lifespan is, is framed by the next person in the genealogy that followed that line, that heritage. You see what I'm saying there? And it's interesting how it's framed that way. The reason I point that out to you is because I believe that's a picture of something as well. All of history, the dates we have, what is that framed by? Christ, 
Jesus himself. What do we call it? We're in 2016 A.D. And when from Christ's life before that, what do we call that? B.C. That stands for before Christ. All of history is framed by Christ's life and his reference to all of history. And so throughout the lineage, we're seeing the same model here. Isn't that interesting? The same model is followed here. Each person's life is framed by the next person in the genealogy. He lived this long, and then this person was born. And then he had this many years after. And it's kind of like a microcosm picture of Christ himself, how all of history is framed by his existence, his time here on earth. And we have these terms now, A.D. and B.C., that we use to reference this. And, you know, obviously it's an interesting thing to note. I'm sure many of you know there's been, uh, over the past couple decades, uh, quite a movement among the secular community to change those terms from A.D. and B.C. to B.C.E., before the Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. And they want to kind of get away from the whole religious thing. We don't want to force our religion on anyone. So, you know, that was the idea behind that. But uh, A.D., again, it doesn't mean after death. It actually means Anno Domini, meaning year of our Lord. Um, History was literally framed uh, by the time of Christ. But just to bring out some important facts, just something to know, um, the A.D. and B.C. system of dating with Christ at its, as its central focus, it's not, it's not found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't outline that dating system. But it was actually developed around 525 A.D. Um, when the entrance of Christ into the world was really publicly recognized, really by those in power at that time, as the turning point of history. And so calendars were all set to reflect that. That terminology came into effect. It was around 500 centuries after Christ uh, that that actually was officially put in place. But BCE and CE, uh, before the Common Era, or the, and the Common Era, those terms are relatively recent. Um, earliest writings that are found using an alternate method are only as far back as the 1800s. So it's really recent that people tried to get away from the whole BCAD thing. And, um, and that was very sparse, where those things showed up. And really, until about 1980, we see a sudden real influx of these two terms replacing in the secular world and the education system, we're starting to, we started to see it really become a lot more commonly used, trying to, trying to purposefully rid any reference to Christ out. Um, and so we're talking just the past 30 years, 30, 40 years, that it really has become this massive push to get Christ out of education, out of history, um, as a frame of reference. Um, so they managed to just change a couple letters and call it something different. What's sad is there's a lot of people today who have no idea. A lot of people, that's all they've known. And they have no idea that the dates are exactly the same. Whether it's BCE or it's BC, or whether it's CE or AD, it's still 2016. And they just kind of changed it to try and get away from that. So that's just a little side note. But all of history is framed around Christ himself. So picking up in verse 21, it says, Enoch lived... 65 years, and became the father of Methuselah. So here's some two, some two pretty interesting characters here. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years and became the father of Methuselah, and after, had, after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, relatively short life compared to the others. Except reading on in verse 24, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Whoa. 
So he did not die, as the rest of them reading over and over did. Something different happened here. Something very unique. First of all, we see that instead of saying, you know, over and over as we read through this chapter, we'll see with each person it says, so-and-so lived X number of years and became the father of so-and-so, right? That's the phrase used. But here we see Enoch walked with God X number of years and then begot so-and-so. It's interesting how it defines that. And it goes on to repeat that when it talks about how he was not, but God took him. He walked with God. He was defined by that. It kind of makes me think of uh, that famous quote from Braveheart. I've never actually seen the whole movie, but it's, uh, you know, everyone dies, but not everyone lives. Anybody ever heard that? And this is kind of like, well, everyone dies, but not everybody walks with God, apparently. But true life is found, true full life is found in walking with God, walking by his side and in his way. Amen? Amen. Mm. And Hebrews, so we're going to look at, we're going to try and find out more about this guy Enoch because there's not much said here. Who was he and why does it take this break in the narrative to point this out? Um, so let's, we're going to look at Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 5. I'll pause for those who are taking notes. Hebrews 11, verse 5 it says, so it turns out Enoch also, just like Abel, made it into the hall of faith. And it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. Hebrews 11, verse 5. Also, it's also interpreted translated. So Enoch was translated or taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we know Enoch had great faith, that in walking with God, he truly trusted and put his faith in God, and that was rare in his day and time. Apparently, that was very rare. And God had a much bigger purpose for Enoch. God had something in mind for him, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let's get another clue from Jude. So if you want to turn over to Jude, we're going to pick up in verse 14. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 14. And it says, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, it's interesting that he points out it's the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they had done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this is quoting Enoch, a prophecy of Enoch. So first of all, it's telling us Enoch was a prophet. A prophet. So here we have the, actually the second prophet of, of the Bible. We had Abel first, remember? How Jesus calls Abel a prophet. And now we have Enoch was a prophet in the early days. What is Enoch prophesying about? Well, he's talking about the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. He's talking about the second coming, the second coming of Christ. Before the flood of Noah, Enoch was prophesying about the second coming of Christ. Whoa, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So Enoch is one of the early prophets. Not only was talking, not only was a modern prophet in his time about the flood, the Noah coming, the grand deluge as it's called, the flood of Noah, the big judgment of Noah, 
But he also prophesied about a second coming, a final judgment that would one day come, Christ's second coming. That's pretty amazing. But Enoch and his son Methuselah are a picture of the prophecy in and of themselves. Methuselah, Enoch's son, his life, his very life was a prophecy. And it's interesting that Methuselah's life is the longest one recorded in the Bible, 965 years. So to me, that just again shows a picture of God's mercy, that this prophecy of judgment lasted for the lifespan of the oldest person ever recorded. How, how perfect of a picture of God's mercy is that? That God's mercy is enduring. He's long-suffering. He's patient. But if you do the math, we know that the flood came in Noah's 600th year, and that is the exact year that Methuselah died. If you do the math going through the genealogies, then the year that Methuselah died, the flood came. And Methuselah's life was a picture of the prophecy. The, as a matter of fact, the name Methuselah actually points to that. If we look at Methuselah, his name means his death shall bring. And so Methuselah, in his life, was meant to be a picture of the prophecy of Enoch and what, the, what was to come, the, pro, the judgment that was on its way. Can you imagine living in the neighborhood with Methuselah? You knew his life was a picture of a prophecy of impending judgment, and you knew the day he died... Judgment's coming, and then he gets sick. He's, you're like, oh no, is he going to make it through this? You know, or he gets injured. Every time the guy gets sick, you'd be like freaking out. Can you imagine the panic in his hometown all the time? I'm just thinking that would have been kind of crazy. But this prophecy in Jude is very interesting. The way it's phrased is actually in the past tense. It truly illustrates that how anything God says is as good as done. Amen? We can consider it done. When God says something's going to happen, it may as well have already happened. So a couple things we know from this one prophecy in Jude. We know that the coming judgment is certain. We know who's going to accompany him, a band of his holy angels. We know why. It's to bring judgment, and we know it's judgment for all. You know, again, the flood of Noah was not judgment for all, was it? There was a remnant preserved through that judgment. Noah and his family. So we know he was speaking of the second coming and the final judgment. And we know that the result of this judgment is that all ungodliness will be dealt with. Justice will finally be rendered. Another little interesting parallel, a little side note. Enoch was removed, wasn't he? He was, he was removed from the earth before the judgment came, before the flood came. And I think Enoch can also be seen as a picture of something. We notice that Enoch was not translated or taken away in the middle of the flood, was he? He wasn't taken away after the flood. You might, want, you might say that he was pre-flood. I don't know what I'm referring to there. But uh, Enoch, is, is, in a sense, I think could be a picture of the church and the rapture of the church. And we see that he was taken away before God's judgment and wrath was poured out. And I really believe that he is a picture of what Christ and his bride and what his intentions are with his bride are. Those who walk with God, those who are his, those who are born again, and our sons of God, I believe we will be removed before the final judgment comes. And I think Enoch is a picture of that, a very vivid picture of that. There's only one other person in the Bible that we know of that's recorded as being taken up rather than dying. Anyone know who that is? Elijah, right. Elijah. Elijah was also translated or raptured. 
midway. It's, it's interesting because Enoch was taken midway between Adam and Abraham, about halfway through. Elijah was taken about halfway between Abraham and Christ. And these are the only two people recorded in Scripture of having not died a physical death. 2 Kings 2.11, if you're taking notes, is, that, is where that can be found. 2 Kings chapter 2. And he's walking with Elisha. He's raising up the future prophet. And as they're walking, picking up in chapter 2, verse 11 of 2 Kings, it says, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them, meaning separated Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And that's what happened to Elijah. So here we have Enoch and Elijah, the two people in Scripture who haven't died a natural death yet. Well, we can ask the question, well, then why did, would that happen with just these two people? You'd think, well, then we should see throughout Scripture that, that uh, people who walked with God, God is just kind of plucking people left and right. Well, that'd be nice. I wouldn't mind that. Um, but this is all part of a bigger plan, I believe. And if we look in Revelation, again, we're not given names, but I think we can make a pretty good educated guess. Revelation 11 tells us of two witnesses that come during the final judgment. Remember those? We finished studying Revelation recently. Revelation chapter 11 tells us of two witnesses that appear on the scene before the final judgment. And we could speculate, I think, very make a very solid case that these two witnesses are none other than Elijah and Enoch, that he had a final purpose for them. They came down and uh, represented God one last time and were witnesses for him, and then they did die during that account, but then God raises them up after three days. So I believe Enoch, his work is not done on earth. He just has a really nice long hiatus in, he in heaven with God, waiting for that final that final duty that he will fulfill, as we read about in Revelation. And just like in the days of the, prior to the flood of Noah, Enoch's purpose was the same, wasn't it? Enoch's purpose prior to the flood of Noah was what? To prophesy of the judgment to come, to warn the people, to let them know. What's his purpose going to be when he comes in Revelation, right before the second coming? Same thing, same thing, judgment's coming. Matter of fact, he prophesied about it back here in Genesis, and he's going to show up right before it, as we read about in Revelation. So I think uh, it's pretty solid cases can be made for that. Again, <clears throat> in Revelation, it does not list them by name, but it certainly seems to be clear in Scripture who the best candidates for that would be. <clears throat> Bless you. So picking up in Genesis chapter 5, going back, going back there, picking up in verse 25. And it says, Methuselah lived 187 years became the father of Lamech. And then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech. And he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. <clears throat> and Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from our toil of our hands arising out of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Which curse is he talking about? Uh, you know, uh, some speculate it's the curse of Cain he's talking about there. I think it's pretty clear, though, because he says he's giving us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands arising out of the ground. Well, uh, we're told in Cain's curse that 
despite all work, nothing is going to come forth. So any work done would just be utterly worthless and vain. So I think he's clearly talking about the original curse of Adam, that in toil and in sweat and in pain, uh, you're going to bring forth uh, fruit from the ground. And obviously, this must be prophetic, because Noah didn't bring much relief from that. I don't know about you, but we still have to work. I do, at least. So Noah clearly wasn't the one to really bring that relief. I see this as a prophecy about the one who would come through Noah, about Christ himself, who ultimately will bring that rest, that eternal rest. That's what we look forward to. That's where the real freedom. Noah didn't break the curse. Who broke the curse? Jesus. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us on the cross. We've got a good illustration right here. We're about to celebrate it this Friday. And we celebrate it because of what it did for us. It wasn't a, wasn't a good deal for him. We definitely got the good end of the bargain. But Noah, his life and his name point to Christ himself. And then reading on in verse 30, it says, Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and had other sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 777 years. Interesting number. Number of completion, 777 years, and he died. And then Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we have these three descendants listed right off the bat. All the way up to this point, we just had one. So just kind of an interesting thing. And we're not told, I don't know if they're triplets or what, but uh, we're given the names of these three specific descendants uh, through which Noah's line would go. And we're going to learn more about them, obviously, in future chapters. But what's in a name? I want to go back for a second and talk about this genealogy in a little more detail. Let's talk about these names and, and let's talk about a little bit more. If we dig beyond the surface, there's a little more in this chapter than just a history account. As we already saw in Enoch and in Noah, there's prophecy. But as it says in Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. I believe God, in his word, uh, gave us all kinds of things to search out. And that we're intended to study it and dig into it, not just read the surface, but this is really kind of like an archaeological site, and we're supposed to dive in and dig and study and see what we might glean here. So let's do that. Let's dig a little deeper. So again, in this chapter, we see genealogy of 10 people from Adam to Noah, and I want to look a little bit into their names and what they might mean and what they might represent. First of all, to lay a bit of a foundation for that, we have to look at the Hebrew language, because... Uh, what is not seen all the time in some of the word study resources we have, even the Strong's Concordance, sometimes I've found comes a little short. Uh, we see a lot of times a modern translation or modern Hebrew word, and then the English equivalent is sort of spelled out, and there's not a lot of really digging into the actual root words of the original text. And the reason I mention that is because all Hebrew letters are actually built on three roots three root letter, or um, all words are built on three root letters. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You can look at Psalm 119 to illustrate that. Psalm 119 takes one of each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and then each stanza uh, in Psalm 119 is, is titled after that letter, and it uses that letter throughout, the, throughout that stanza. And you can see the whole alphabet in there. But turns out by studying the letters themselves and their structures, 
uh, we can learn much more about what these names mean because the letters themselves actually have meaning. Unlike the English language, our letters don't have really any meaning by themselves, do they? The letter A is just the letter A. It's really kind of worthless unless it's used as part of a word or part of a sentence. That's not, that's not the same in Hebrew. The letters are actually have meaning in and of themselves. Matter of fact, the University of Arizona used to have a program in which they would teach Hebrew, and the way they would teach is they would teach the letters and the meaning of the letters, and by doing that effectively, you could read about 80% of all Hebrew uh, throughout the different eras of time just by understanding the letters themselves. You didn't even have to study the words. You could, you could understand what every word meant by knowing the letters. So to give you an example, we see the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, uh, and that, wor- that letter, again, you can look at these all through Psalm 119, uh, but that letter actually means first. It means first, or leader. And then the second letter, Beth, B-E-T-H, as we would spell it out in English equivalent, that actually, in and of itself, that letter means house. And so, consequently, if we take A and B, put, take Aleph and Beth, we take, and you have form the word Ab or A-B, uh, that word... Uh, that is the word for father in the ancient Hebrew because that literally means leader of the house. It means first of the house or leader of the house. Can you, so can you see how these words are built and how there's so much beneath the surface? The fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, he or H-E, in the English equivalent means breathe or spirit. And anytime you insert the, those two letters in the middle it basically uh, is a reference many times to the Spirit of God or to who He is. So the, again, there's so much here. It's, it's pretty amazing. But let's go ahead and go and look at these names really quick and see if we can't understand what might be the meaning behind them. So Adam, we already know Adam. We've talked about this before. Adam literally means man. And we're kind of told that pretty plainly in the text. He was the first man. He was basically the founder of humankind in that sense. It literally means man. Seth, if we, if we pick it apart and look at the root structure of the word, uh, means substitute or appointed. And we talked also about that thus far. Now, because remember, if you remember, uh, Cain kills Abel, right? And Abel was really looked at as that godly son, the one that was supposed to carry on that heritage, and now he's gone, he's dead. And so Eve, in naming Seth, was looking at Seth to be the one to carry that heritage, to carry that line. So that's what, thus was his name, Seth. Enos means mortal or frail. It also has sometimes been used to mean miserable. How would you like to have that name? (laughs) Man, here comes miserable. Kenan or Canaan, as it's interpreted in the King James, means sorrow or dirge. Mahalalel means the blessed God or praised God. And I'm going through these in order of the, of the genealogies are listed. Jared, or Yared, as it's properly pronounced, means shall come down. And it's interesting because we read in chapter 6 about some pretty strange things that happened historically in that time about angels coming down and having relations with human women and some pretty crazy things happening. Yes, we're going to talk about that next week. Um, but some pretty, pretty amazing, pretty baffling things. So shall come down was his name is what that meant. Enoch means commencement or teaching. And, of course, it's fitting. He was a teacher at that time. He was a prophet. The oldest prophecy in the Bible was uttered by him. 
Methuselah means his death shall bring. We talked about that, remember? Because we knew the, the, the year he died, the prophecy was, that's when the judgment would come. That's when the flood would come. Lamech means, the root of it means to lament or despairing or to despair. And then Noah, as we're told here, means comfort or rest because they look to Noah to be that one to bring that comfort or rest. But what is even more interesting is if we put this all together and read what this genealogy says, if you put it together, it says, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. That is what the genealogy literally says when you go through from Adam to Noah. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. Amazing. That's God's word. God's word is, is amazing. It's marvelous. And there's so much more to it than what we might find just on the surface. I encourage you to dig and to study because uh, you will not be disappointed when you look into God's word. You know, and this is one of those things where there is no possible way we could reasonably believe that ancient Hebrew scholars got together and conspired this, that they would conspire to put a message of the Christian gospel in their Torah. No, that would be ridiculous. They would not do that. They wouldn't be interested in doing that. But clearly, God preserved his gospel message from the beginning even in the genealogy, in the line that he chose through which to bring Christ. Hebrews 1.4, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.4 talks about how God planned this before the foundation of the world. And so next week, we're going to talk about the flood. We're going to talk about why did the flood come? Was it just sin? Was there more to it? What did Jesus mean when he talked about the days of Noah and his prophecies? Who were the Nephilim? Uh, what is who are these fallen ones? All this crazy stuff. There's going to be some interesting things to talk about next week. So that's to be continued. But until then, I want to leave you with a scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I think, sums this up really well, starting in verse 45. And it says, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, speaking of Jesus. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, or earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So be encouraged with that. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in you we are born again, that we are your sons and daughters. We're not merely sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but that we have an eternal nature, that we are considered like you. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness because of that. And we have eternity to look forward to. We have immortality that one day we will be truly changed, completely changed, and that we will truly be in your image. We'll enjoy your presence forever. And so we look forward to that. We thank you for just the marvelous nature of your word, how you've preserved it for us, just how incredible it is, and how what a picture of your mercy and your divine plan it is. Help us to go out from here with your joy and your confidence, and Lord, that our faith would be holy in you, that as Enoch put his faith in you and pleased you, I pray that we would walk with you each day of our lives, however long that may be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.